Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall, Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and world. Today you have a new host while Philip Fleming is away on study leave. My name is Sam Tranter, Director of Postgraduate Studies and Lecturer in Doctrine and Ethics at Cranmer Hall, and it's great to be with you. If you enjoy Talking Theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Talking Theo and share on social media. Thank you for listening. Now, on to today's episode. What does it mean to be a theologian and how does that relate to the everyday faith of the church? What is a wise theological response to the problem of evil? How can we approach suffering without denying it on the one hand, or sacralising it on the other? How might Julian of Norwich help us hold together our unanswered questions with hope for God's unimaginable future? What's wrong with thinking of the doctrine of the Trinity as a tool for solving practical problems? And what then is the doctrine of the Trinity for? Finally, how can an apophatic approach help theology know its limits? In today's episode of Talking Theology, I'll be talking to Karen Kilby. Karen is the B Professor of Catholic Theology at Durham University and is one of the world's leading systematic theologians. She has written numerous books and articles on a wide range of topics, including the Trinity, suffering, apophatic theology, and the major Catholic theologians Karl Rahner and Hans Urs von Balthasar, as well as the medieval theologian Julian of Norwich. The 2020 book God, Evil and the Limits of Theology was published by Bloomsbury and collects a number of seminal essays published over the last two decades. Our title today is Suffering, Mystery and Christian Doctrine, Why the Limits Matter for Theology. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. Karen Kilby, welcome to Talking Theology. Thanks, Sam. It's good to be with you. Now, perhaps we might start uh, by learning a bit more about you, Karen. What have been some key markers on the path to your current role uh, as the B Professor of Catholic Theology at Durham University? Well, actually, uh, I grew up in America, in Connecticut, and I ended up going to university, going to college there, and I was a double major, starting with mathematics and and kind of picked up studying theology along the way. And I first came to the UK when I was studying mathematics in Cambridge for a year. Um, and I, I wound up staying in this country because I met someone at that time who eventually uh, became my husband. I then um, worked for a couple of years in St. Andrews on a postdoc. And then I've been lucky enough to work in Birmingham University, then Nottingham University, where I was for 13 years before I arrived in Durham. So I suppose it was only when I arrived in Durham that I ever had the title of Catholic theology in my, or Catholic theology in my title. And before that, I was kind of a teaching broadly in systematic theology without it being fair for me to be more Catholic in what I taught than, than teaching from the Protestant tradition. And I was also educated entirely by Protestant teachers at university levels. So it's kind of an interesting situation to, 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 to wind up in, in, in a fairly unusually titled chair in the UK context in Catholic theology after having come through a slightly different education and background. Thank you. And I, I wonder, uh, 
how do you understand the task then of Christian systematic theology? And in particular, something that I've heard you talk about in a very striking way is how do you see the role of a Christian theologian, perhaps even a systematic theologian, in relation to the life of the church? Well, I don't like to see the theologian as the great hero of the church who who uh, is the exemplary practitioner and, you know, the most saintly character and, and knows where everything should be going because that doesn't live up to my experience of myself or indeed of most of my theological colleagues. And it doesn't seem a safe way to think. So I like to think about theology as something that has a particular contribution to make. It's not everything. It's not a sole leadership. but and, and its contribution to make is often in terms of noticing problems, noticing difficulties at particular points uh, in, what, in, in our shared faith or in our shared wrestling with how that faith fits into the world we're in, and then kind of going deeper into the problems uh, and reflecting on them and you know, possibly bringing something back to others. There's a there's a phrase that some people like to throw about that comes from Church Father Evagrius, which is the, the the theologian is one who prays and one who prays truly is a theologian. And my um, spin on that is that the theologian is the one who prays and who stumbles in their prayer um, and who thinks about their stumbling. So, of course, we all stumble in our prayer. And by prayer, I mean takes part in the practice of Christian life more generally, really, that we're not the exemplary practitioners but we're people who are particularly good at noticing that we're stumbling and, and, and reflecting on the meaning of the stumbling. And so we sometimes get more hung up. We might be secondary in our ability to pray, but we might have something to bring back to others as a result. So the last thing I'd say about that is it's it's obviously not a very systematic version of systematic theology in the sense that what I'm not thinking is we construct grand systems where we, we figure out how everything is connected to everything and have something to say on everything. It's more we notice something that's bothering us and we dig away at it for a while. That's that's my instinct. And one of the things, Karen, you've been digging away at over the last decade or more has been the question of evil within theology, within the Christian life. In 2020, you brought out a book of essays collecting some of your reflections on this, God, evil, and the limits of theology. In that book, you discuss a whole range of theological issues, doctrine of the Trinity, problem of suffering. And one of the, the questions there is sometimes called the problem of evil. And I wonder, could you help us understand how has that so-called problem been constructed and how has theology responded to it? Yeah, so it's very interesting. It's it's something that a lot of people tend to be familiar with, a very, you know, simple, simply stated problem. Um, if God is all good and all powerful, then why is there evil or suffering in the world? And it's routinely taught in schools, uh, you know, as you can know almost nothing, but you can study this this problem because it's so easy to state. So it's the problem that gets it gets described as uh, theodicy. I guess I partly share in the instinct that that quite a number of recent theologians have had that the the way we talk about this problem is actually quite uh, distorting because it's taken on such prominence and because it's treated so abstractly. It's actually it's actually kind of out of step with a lot of the Christian tradition and maybe even to a certain degree with Christian experience that Christianity is not fundamentally about solving that intellectual puzzle and that people's faith is in the lived in the midst of not solving it rather than spent on the question of uh, whether they can have an answer. Quite a lot of theology resists the centrality of theodicy, of that, of that simple question. And and so partly it's because it seems out of step with tradition, a little bit out of step with practice. 
also worrying in the relation it puts us to the relation it puts us into evil because it makes us be looking for a way to say this is the worry that evil is not quite so bad because we can explain it we can reconcile ourselves to it by showing why god should allow it and that that's actually kind of distorting for us to think that way a bad way to train our students to think about evil and sin and suffering and i i mostly agree with that that there's one point where i disagree a little bit with some of these other theologians who are anti-theodicists which is that i i don't think the question is simply a mistake i think questions like this really do arise and pain us within christian life in in many ways at particular points we suffer from them we would like to be able to answer them it's a natural thing you know maybe not the abstract question of the philosophers but in different ways why is we believe Jesus has completely transformed the world. Why does it look so untransformed? Um, we believe the Spirit's at work. Where is it at work and the things that are going wrong? We, these questions in different ways do press on us. So I don't think the question's illegitimate. I just think we have to realize that we've kind of shown ourselves that every attempt we have at an answer makes things worse. It either distorts the way we think about God or it distorts the way we think about evil. Part of the Christian life is is and part of being a good theologian, but also just a, a good believer is suffering from the question, but not forcing an answer that won't work to it. And maybe come to terms with the fact that in on this side of the grave, we may not have a complete answer. I wonder, as you try and help us move away from sort of the kind of textbook uh, framing of this problem, which, as you so helpfully articulated, doesn't really necessarily help as much as we think it might. What are some of the resources you've turned to to help us reframe it or give us resources to live with? I mean, I'm thinking of your work on Julian of Norwich, for instance, but there could be other places you've gone. Where, where have you sort of looked to? I suppose in, in line with what I was saying before about often starting with something that feels wrong, one of the things that can be wrong is trying to, to me that seems wrong is that we try to come to terms with suffering by somehow making it good, um, by somehow saying, well, deep down, God's in it, and it must be God's way, and it must be how God makes us holy, and it must be the nature of love and, and accommodating ourselves. So one reason I turned to Julian of Norwich is I felt that she really felt suffering as a problem and actually sin as a problem. She's troubled by it. She circles around it. She doesn't have an answer, but she has a very strong affirmation of, of faith in the sense of God saying to her, all should be well and all should be well, and all manner of things should be well. So she holds this tension of an unanswered question, not thinking that, that the way the world is is good, and having a very powerful hope for something that's unimaginable. So I suppose, actually, I think that we have to hang on to the hope for the unimaginable. So eschatology would be one, eschatology being this nicely technical word for uh, the doctrine of the last things, of the end of the world, of, of where it's all going in the long run that that's actually quite important and that we don't get over-reconciled to the world that we live in. I've also tried to pay attention to, I think it's very unlikely that a theologian is going to come up with an idea that has nothing to, to do with the way people are already practicing their faith, as though we would somehow say, oh, you all got it wrong and there's a completely different thing you should be doing and it's this. So trying to pay attention to the practice of the faith and what's actually going on seems quite important to me. And one way I've tried to do that is by having the opportunity to do a really nice project with a group of sisters, of Catholic religious sisters, on the theme of suffering and love. So talking to them about how do they think and how do they pray, how do they experience, how do they reflect on their experience of suffering and how do they see it in relation to, to love and grace and so on. Just So to kind of start 
from attending to the way faithful Christians think about these things and then look for the patterns in that and weave that into my reflection. That's been interesting for me to do. What are some of the kind of themes or trends or patterns that you've noticed as you accompany those sisters of La Retraite? Do they relate, you know, well to the kind of academic theological discussions you've been part of or are they to be juxtaposed with it? How do you see that? Um, I, I was trying not to kind of impose the academic discussions onto them. I suppose that I was torn between wanting to say we mustn't fall into becoming reconciled with suffering and saying that ultimately it's good. And yet there's a lot of Christian practices that that go a little that way towards doing that. So you, you, you give witness to the grace that you meet in the midst of the worst suffering. If you have met, if you have perceived grace there, you look for where is God in it. It's a particularly Ignatian thing to do. So the sisters were of an Ignatian formation. You, you reflect on what you've learned on it and so on. So they, they help me to think about what, where's the place for all those things if it's not to say that ultimately suffering is good. How do we hold intention? the good that we find in the midst of suffering with the continued view that suffering isn't good. And they really helped me to think about it a little differently. For instance, I mentioned that I had a you know a starting point in mathematics. And so you can have a starting point in thinking in terms of equations. So suffering is a certain amount of badness. And then there's on the other side of the equation, there's a certain amount of goodness that came out of it. And does the goodness unbalance the badness? And I realized that the way they were talking you just couldn't use that kind of mathematical model. Whatever witness people might give to to love or to grace or to the goodness of God in the midst of suffering, it it didn't undo the, the negativity of suffering. That, so that was a helpful thing they helped me realize. That's very striking. One of the characteristic modes of your writing, I think, Karen, has been this sort of gentle but firm unpicking of what you see as theological missteps in this area and other areas. I think of you know, for instance, here, the way you've carefully but persuasively, I think, unpicked the perspective of the 20th century Catholic theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, and I think in a way that's probably would carry over in a Protestant context to someone like Jürgen Moltmann. So I, I wonder, could you help our listeners understand what you see as what von Balthasar is doing in relation to, say, theology of suffering, and what you think the misstep is? Oh, yeah, thanks. So as I say, I think that, you know, it, it is part of authentic Christian practice to, to look for the good, even in the darkest moments. The light shines in the darkness. We, we have glimpses of the resurrection and so on. But I, I got unsettled by Balthazar with the sense that suffering was really being sacralized or valorized, that it was appearing everywhere, that it was always good, that he was the more the better. And at the pinnacle of his doing that, was embedding something like suffering right into the doctrine of the Trinity. So, you know, the alienation of the father from the son that you that he thinks you see on the cross must reflect some original, something like an original distance, and that's just on the edge of suffering. It's kind of like suffering, some, some, something that becomes suffering that was always there in God. To put it quite crudely, suffering becomes divinized. If you say that God suffers, then you're saying in some sense that suffering is divine. And then there's no escape. There's no hope for ever getting beyond suffering. You've just got to accommodate it in the long run. That's the log- It seems to me the logic of reading suffering back into God. If people do it to say God takes suffering seriously, I take suffering seriously by saying even God suffers. But I just find it very scary because at the same time you're saying, but if God suffers, then suffering is, is divine. And I'd rather not live in a world like that. I don't, the gospel becomes not good news to me um, when it's read that way. 
one of the noticeable things about the way you've reasoned across your theological writing has been to notice how the doctrine of the Trinity, as there, has been seen as a kind of key or a tool to solve problems in the Christian life. You know, most notably, you um, took to task, if you like, a set of theologians who you might call social Trinitarian thinkers, who were doing this in a thoroughgoing way. Could you tell us a bit about what you saw as the issue there and what you wanted us to remember in response to them? Yeah, so I, I started to notice that there was this kind of consistent excitement around the doctrine of the Trinity as a place where instead of being some difficult problem, it was this wonderfully vibrant vision of God as an intense community of love from whom we could learn how to structure the church, how to build society. I once heard someone talk about um, city planning, that he could get it from the Trinity, because if the Trinity is this kind of community, then this is how you should set out your roads and parks. And it, it does, it's very seductive because it makes the most abstract Christian doctrine like immediately relevant. And I, I think the doctrine of the Trinity is absolutely vital and, and plays a really important role in Christian theology. But I was disturbed by this. And what I eventually came up, I mean, there's other reasons to be disturbed as well. But in particular, what particularly struck me was that there's a kind of double projection that goes on here where you say, what does it mean for the one to be three? Um, we know that God is one. We know that God's three, that's central to our faith. So how should we think about that? Well, the closest analogy we have is when people are really, really loving towards each other. And when we have a little community, like three people who are intensely loved, they, they almost become one. A family's like a unit or uh, you know, a small community has a oneness to it. So maybe we should think about God as being like you know, the most wonderful, possible, vibrant human community of intense love and, and, and the three love each other so much that they're united. And we always have to do this in theology. We don't have a way of thinking about God that doesn't start with earthly concepts, but you've taken a particular one and you've said, that's what I mean when I don't know how to think about three and one. But then you very quickly turn around and you say, look at this. In this doctrine, we have this wonderful vision of what human community is. So the thing that I just yesterday projected straight onto the unknowable three-in-oneness, I today say this is the map, this is the distinctive thing Christians have to offer the rest of the world, a perfect image of community. And whatever you think perfect community is, that's what you project onto the Trinity, and then that's what you read off the Trinity. So the theologian becomes the one who can say, this is what community is like because this is what the Trinity is like. But actually, the reason they said the Trinity was like that in the first place was because that's what they thought perfect community was like. And you can trace this through different theologians saying slightly different things about whether the persons of the Trinity first exist and then are in relation or, or not. And it depends on their commitments about what, what, you know, what they think is really important about the way human communities should work. I mean, I think it's okay to play with ideas and to get inspiration in all kinds of ways and maybe to say that relationship goes all the way down. It really matters to us. I think that's all fine. But if you start thinking that you really understand the Trinitarian pattern that's arisen in history with what you've just projected, it gives a kind of false authority to theologians who can then become the experts on how to manage society and what politics should be and, and possibly even town planning. If the Doctrine of Trinity isn't the kind of thing we should invoke when doing town planning, but also perhaps you know more, more realistic kinds of uh, social ethic, whatever it might be, what, in your sense, is the doctrine of the Trinity for? I mean, what, what's its role in the Christian life? 
So I, I think to, and can I just say that I don't think that Christianity has no resources for thinking about how we should even do town planning or how we should run our societies and so on. But I think it's better to start with the ones that are accessible to all of us about, you know, the parables of Jesus, the Ten Commandments. There's, there's all kinds of resources that just speak very directly. If you, if you want to start from scripture or you can, if you're Catholic, you have Catholic social teaching, you have all kinds of things. So it's not that we have nothing to say. It's just that I'm not sure we should start with our most technical doctrine. Um, to get it. Otherwise, we give the theologian an inappropriate role. But nevertheless, I do think the Trinity has a role to play and the doctrine of the Trinity has a role to play. And that's to help hold the fundamental parts of our faith together and hold them in the right relationship to each other. So we we are monotheists. We believe in one God. We've not abandoned the faith of, of the Old Testament. We believe Jesus is divine, but we don't believe that means there are two gods. We believe the Holy Spirit is divine. We, we know how to, to pray to the Father. We know how to look to Jesus. We know how to, you know, trust that the Holy Spirit moves in us and, and try to discern where the Holy Spirit moves in us. We're doing these practices and the doctrine of the Trinity just helps us coordinate them, holds them in place so that we don't do one and forget about the others. We don't, you know, turn into a monotheism of Jesus, Jesus is God and that's all I need to know. We don't cut the Holy Spirit off from the Father and the Son. Uh, so it, it helps us hold the parts of the faith that are familiar. They're not they're not super specialist bits of theology, but it helps us keep them all in play and, and hold them in relationship to each other. And one of the patterns of your thought there is to kind of dissuade theologians from being overconfident in their speech about God, about um, the implications for society and life. One way that kind of caution has been described is as an apophatic tradition. Um, could you tell us what do you mean by apophatic when you use that term? And what's the kind of heritage of Christian thinking in an apophatic way? So by apophatic, I would mean kind of alert to to the limits of our knowledge and to what can't be said about God. On the one hand, when people talk about apophatic theology, they're often thinking about a very particular strand of theology that starts with Dionysus the Areopagite, also known as Pseudo-Dionysus, and a kind of tradition of mystical theology, which which emphasizes the divine darkness and which really focuses on the unsayableness, the unspeakableness of God. Within a Christian context, they're referring to the Bible. It's not some independently set up idea that God is unsayable, but picking out themes that are there all along. But I actually think that every theologian worth their salt has a strong dose of the apophatic, the awareness of what they can't say at one point or another in their theology, even if they're not deeply influenced by Dionysus the Areopagite, so or you know Meister Eckhart or something, so this tradition of mystical theologians. So you you know you can find it in Karl Barth, let's say, where he'll get to a certain point and just say, "Do we know how to answer these questions? No, no more than anyone else. Do we know how to resolve the basic problems of the Trinity, or do we know how to speak coherently about evil?" So different theologians do it in different ways, but the the acknowledgement that this is a form of speech where we hit our limits and where we have to respect that. Otherwise, we move into kind of self-deception and idolatry, I think. Now, someone you've tracked doing that um, in your earlier theological work, but as an enduring conversation partner, is Karl Rahner. Now, I don't know whether our listeners will have read Rahner, read some, never heard of him. Could you tell us what did you see in Rahner that really excited you theologically? Yeah, thanks. So Karl Rahner is a Catholic theologian who was um, born in 1904 and quite influential in, in the 
1960s, 70s onward. Um, and I think he's one of the great voices of modern Catholic theology. He has a deep sense of of God as mystery, God as the holy mystery, and some kind of really beautiful ideas about how our life is not basically a lot of knowing with tiny bits where we don't know, but that we're basically living in relation to God and mystery is most fundamental. It what make us human, it's what's most important, and the bits we know are really the tiny bits in the midst of this larger mystery. I found that quite attractive. I also like the way Rahner engages in theology, and I think I've sort of learned that fundamentally from him, that he, as I understand him anyways, he he's not set on having the answer to everything, but it, but living in the midst of, of, of the faith of the church and and kind of therapeutically diagnosing the problems that come up within it. So he might say, this is a kind of outdated language, but he would talk about a kind of schizophrenia, which which one shouldn't use mental health diagnoses, especially then you don't fully understand them to diagnose intellectual problems. So maybe now you would, I don't even know, but there, there's a kind of divide in Christians where they accept the modern world on the one hand, and then they profess a particular faith on the other, and they just hold them apart and don't integrate them. So he's always seeking to help us more fully more fully take on what we believe by joining it up better with itself, I suppose. I wonder, could we be a little bit cheeky and ask you what you're working on at the moment? What's the next thing? I'm still working on questions around suffering. So I've just started drafting a paper on does the cross change the way we think about suffering? Um, so there have been some theologians who've been worried about the possibility of overemphasizing suffering and making it into something good. And they've said we should stop paying so much attention to the cross. We should pay attention to Jesus' practice and how he lived and how who he was friends with. And all those things are clearly important. But I'm convinced that you that if you do that, you kind of put yourself out of step with too much in the Christian tradition. If you say, in order not to be too um, too much emphasis on suffering, I'm going to sideline the cross you're kind of having to sideline stuff that's very central to, you know, the Gospels in an obvious way. So I think that I'm trying to think how we can look at the cross and find something that helps, that speaks to the defeat of suffering rather than the accommodation of suffering or the um, the overcoming of suffering rather than the sanctification of suffering, or that that's at least the primary emphasis of what we see in the cross. That's the thing I'm working on just at the moment. Now, the last question, Karen, we always ask every guest is in terms of the impact of your research on your own sense of vocation, your own faith. And in particular, I think it will be interesting for us to hear here how your work on theology and suffering has shaped your own faith and vocation as a theologian. Yeah, thanks. That's an interesting question, which actually nobody's ever asked me directly before. I mean, one thing I have to say is I, I couldn't say I'm working on suffering because I have huge experiences of suffering. I mean, every human being has a bit of an experience of suffering, but I think I probably have as little as one can get away with for a person of my age. So one thing that my um, work has done is to make me think quite hard about what it is to be the person who's next to the person who suffers or the person who's aware of others suffering and how that shapes us. I think that's something that always bothered me. I kind of felt a bit bad that I suffer so little compared to so many situations in the world. I probably was a believer in the importance of privilege, you know, 40 years before anyone started mentioning it, not quite in the ways we mention it now, but it always disturbed me. So so I suppose I've become a bit better attuned to the to some of the ways we can go wrong in, in response to other people's suffering. 
But I think I have <laughs> I have also come to see that I sometimes find writing a painful thing. So it's a small so so there is also a carrying of your suffering as part of the Christian vocation, a carrying of your cross, uh, a, a, like a cheerfulness about not making too much about things not being perfect, because sometimes discipleship comes with one degree or another of suffering. So even though I don't suffer very much, I've started, strangely enough, to think about the very act of writing a paper about suffering as itself causing me a strange form of suffering. But I think more significantly than that, I've started to think about the effect that, say, writing has on young scholars and the uncertainty of the theological career has on young scholars. And rather than just saying, that's tough, suck it up, one should, or, or cheer up, it'll be fine. I've started to think it's, it's good to say, um, yeah, there's suffering involved here. You're, you're going into an unknown future. You've committed so much of yourself to it in time and money. It might all come wrong. Don't underestimate that that's, it's not the world's greatest suffering. There's a lot worse things that could happen to you, but it, it is something to bear. And, the, and then the challenge is how do you bear it lightly and well without uh, overdoing it or letting it twist the way you do the theology itself. Karen, you've engaged so generously with our questions and it's been thought-provoking all the way along. So thank you for being with us and talking theology. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St. John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com.